Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome back to another week of the Tech Ed Podcast. My name is Matt Kirkner. I am your host. You know, in this day and age of things like supply chain challenges that are due in part, at least, to a shortage of STEM and manufacturing talent, due in part to a shortage of programs necessary to prepare the next generation of skilled manufacturing and STEM talent, and of programs that have a critical need for teachers that are skilled and able to and inspired to create this next generation of STEM talent. It seems sometimes that we have a new policy, a new directive, a new proclamation, maybe even a new Blue Ribbon Commission every single day or every single week designed to address the issue. And, you know, sometimes I wonder whether we spend enough time going back and saying, okay, we had this great idea. What happened? What came of it? And did it really work? Today, we are going to do exactly that. The story starts 11 years ago when then-President Obama, in his 2011 State of the Union address, started a call to action to create 100,000 STEM teachers by the year 2021. The individual who co-founded and is the executive director of that initiative known as the 100K in 10 initiative is with us today on the Tech Ed Podcast. Talia Milgram Elcott, thank you so much for taking some time. Matt, it's so great to be here. Thank you. So 100K in 10, as I mentioned, it started from a call to action from President Obama all the way back in 2011 in his State of the Union address. What was the state of STEM education like back in 2011, and why was this initiative so very crucial? Well, when we started this initiative, most people, when they heard the term STEM, thought about flowers, <laughs> mostly, and like that was actually well-documented. Sometimes they thought about STEM cells. But nobody thought about science, technology, engineering, and math. It was a pretty esoteric term that just a few educators were using. And then President Obama put out this call for 100,000 excellent science, technology, engineering, and math teachers in 10 years. And not only at that time did nobody really know what STEM meant, but at that time, there were projections for millions of unfilled jobs in the STEM sectors. And the majority of schools that served kids who came from low-income zip codes or communities whose uh, kids of color did not have the full suite of even the basic science classes. So many of them didn't offer chemistry, physics, actually calculus, um, let alone things like computer science, engineering, environmental science, the things that kind of really are um, capturing people's imaginations these days. And so those were that was sort of the state of play at that time. There were shortages in STEM fields for not just the workforce, but in teaching. It was hard for many school districts. They would have a shortage on day one, a substitute teacher in a seat. And on day you know, 220 at the end of the school year, that same shortage would still be there. Schools were struggling to hire math and science teachers. Wow, what a challenge. And you think about for what some of us, I suppose, take for granted, you know, chemistry courses, physics, calculus, computer science, engineering, environmental science. I mean, those are table stakes in many, many school districts, but yet you had this entire segment of our society 
and of our economy that weren't being equipped with those skills, weren't having the opportunity to be a part of classes like that. It's, it's almost hard to believe, but certainly sets up the need for, for your important work. Oh, that is just so right. And actually, there's been some amazing research out of Raj Chetty's lab, first at Stanford and now at Harvard, around what he calls lost Einsteins. So like, what is the result? What are the, what's the economic and sort of other impacts of this lack of STEM opportunity in these zip codes? And what he finds is that all of the same indicators are there for little kids of curiosity and interest, such that you should have like patents coming out of all the zip codes at basically the same rates. And then you look at where they're clustered and they're just in a few places sort of circling around MIT, around Stanford, some in New York. But most of the country just has a total like desert of innovation and STEM opportunity. And that has a huge impact on the our ability to be an innovative country, on our ability to drive the workforce of the 21st century. And so, yeah, it's exactly like you're saying, like we think of those as table stakes for this new economy. And yet for many, many kids, it's not, it's a pipe dream to even imagine that they could have had it. And I have to acknowledge that whole term lost Einstein's really, really kind of cuts to the heart of the problem, right? That we have these individuals that could be changing the world and we need to inspire them. We need to get to them. Very, very interesting uh, insight that you have there. Talia, you're you're the co-founder, as we mentioned, and executive director of 100K in 10. So now we're looking back to 2011. President Obama has this huge initiative. You have your first partner summit, and then you went about creating this strategy to tackle. It's really an incredibly massive goal, 100,000 teachers. So talk to us a little bit about that. Well, you know, you started by saying, like, let's look back at this, at, at this call. We rarely look back and see what ha- happens. And I was thinking, I remember reading one time that Anytime we tell stories, and we humans love to tell stories, we always know the end when we start. We say, well, one day I was walking down the street, but we know that actually I bump into my college roommate. Or one day I was at the grocery store, and we know that I found the my, my favorite food from when I was a child. Like We know where the story is going when we start it. But in real life, we start things all the time, and we have no idea where they're going to go. And when we took up this call from President Obama, we had no idea if we could succeed at it. We put the goal into our name and charged forward. There was no certainty in that moment that 10 years later we could say, we did this. What we had instead was like one one big insight at that time. The big insight was that nobody could like reach this goal alone. No one could hit it on their own. And so if we were going to hit this goal, we were going to need to inspire and mobilize hundreds of organizations to take it up see it as their own and deliver their piece of this big shared puzzle. We were going to have to walk over that finish line, run over that finish line, like arm in arm with hundreds and hundreds of people. I'm going to reflect on just a couple of things that you just mentioned, Talia. The first one is, you know, I I had a really good friend who passed away now seven years ago, was a teacher. And one of the things that I said about him was that he was the person that taught me that it's okay to go into an initiative having no idea how you're going to come out of it, but just knowing that if you're willing to have the tenacity to stick at it, that it's okay to start without knowing where how it's going to end. You just know that in some way it's going to end well. You mentioned that. The other thing that you mentioned that I think is really important and was a lesson I learned from another friend of mine uh, some years ago is the importance of leverage. And in so many times we we try to 
come up with an initiative, work on it, work on it on our own, do it all ourselves. And there's certainly people that, that start out with those goals who have a tremendous impact on the world. But the truth is that the larger that you can make that initiative, the more resources you can pull into your goal, the more effective you can be. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about how you mobilize this entire group of different organizations, all with this important goal. So Talia, the goal of 100K in 10 was to prepare 100,000 excellent STEM teachers by the year 2021. And that was as articulated by then President Barack Obama. We're going to spend some time getting into how you went about achieving that goal in a little bit, just a little bit later in the podcast. But let's start out at 30,000 feet. You know, I'm a huge metrics person. I'm a huge believer that when we set out on an initiative, we need to measure ourselves against something. That's a great way of rallying our team. It's a great way of knowing whether our investments paid themselves back. We say what gets measured improves what gets measured gets managed. So as you were putting this whole program together, what were some of those metrics, measurable goals that you were looking at in order to hit your ultimate objective? So I'll tell you a, a little secret. I love secrets. Which is when we when we started this work, you reached out to the White House and said, like, please tell us what the measures are that you were planning on using. How we came to understand over time is that this um, initiative was just the beginning. Like the, the call to action in the State of the Union was just the beginning. And if they had received the support and funding to do it, it was a request in front of Congress for funding to support the preparation of those 100,000 excellent STEM teachers. Then they would have created all of the, the metrics and accountability and the structures. But Congress in 2011 did not approve this this request, this budget request. And so they did not have a, there was no like next step that was taken from the government. And um, so we were left with the task of figuring out how to, how to count. And we knew that it was going to be essential to the credibility of this work for us to count. And so every single partner, I'll tell you in a second how an organization came to get to be called a partner, but everyone had to be nominated and vetted for the quality of their commitment to this shared work. They were audited every year at the end of their academic cycle for how many new teachers they prepared in the STEM subjects. And because some of our partners recruited teachers and some of the other ones prepared them. So for instance, think about Teach for America. In most cases, Teach for America recruits the young person to become a teacher, but doesn't actually certify them or prepare them. So in that instance, you might have two partners preparing the same human they cross-checked each other's numbers. And so every single organization um, shared its numbers, cross-checked against the other people, and then sort of certified those numbers. And those numbers were then certified by the American Institutes of Research, an independent evaluation organization. And so each year we tracked those numbers and you can see us, uh, the first call from President Obama, his initial call was actually 10,000 in two years. And you can see us 12,000 in two years, and then making our way to 20,000, and then sort of tracking toward the 100,000, and then exceeding it in this 10-year time frame. Wow. When we prepared collectively 108,000 teachers in the 10. Yeah, and as we mentioned in the intro, you know, so many of these initiatives, you wonder where they end up. And in this particular case, you not only met, but you've exceeded that goal. You know, very, very impressive. And I think a lot of that had to do with setting out with for a, a specific number, a specific goal, and then holding your partners accountable along the way to make sure that you're you're measuring and improving along the way. Again, a theme we talk about a lot here on the Tech Ed podcast. I want to ask another question 
about the retention of these teachers. So we were preparing them, these excellent STEM teachers that we're putting in the classroom, but we all know, and we've heard stories in the last several years about burnout among teachers, about people becoming disillusioned about whether that's the right career for them long-term. How do you know these people are sticking around in the world of STEM? Ah, that's a great question. So two really important things to share in answering that. One is that one of our partners actually did some research as part of an innovation team through 100K and 10 to understand like what is the actual state of STEM teaching. And one of the things they found, they call it like busting the myth. They actually got a National Science Foundation grant to help to, to understand this. The data is really good. The, they call it, I said, myth busting is that STEM teachers are on the whole, happier than other STEM professionals. We have a myth that teachers are disgruntled and and unhappy, but actually they're happier than almost all other STEM professionals. And they actually have greater longevity than most other STEM professionals also. So that's, I think, really important to say for anyone who's listening, who's thinking to themselves, God, after this time of the great resignation, I really want purpose in my life. I don't want to just go to a job. There is a school near you that needs your STEM talents. Maybe you have spent a career in a science field or an engineering field. There's a school out there and um, by and large, teachers are, are happier, more satisfied and feel more fulfilled in their work, even with the challenges they face than other people in other careers. And they are more respected than almost every other career. Uh, in the country. That said, this has been an extremely hard time, obviously, to be a teacher. And one of the most important things we know we need to understand is what does retention look like at the school level? And what does it look like, not just at the school level, but at the system level? Like what's happening to teachers? And actually, there is no national database of teachers. We have a sort of an aggregate sense of who leaves the field generally. But if we wanted to study, like, does this teacher, is this teacher who was graduated in 2015 still teaching today in 2022? There's not really any way to know that. If a teacher is teaching in their school and then leaves that school but goes to teach in a district closer to home, the school that in the district that that, that teacher left doesn't know if that teacher ever came back to teaching, if the teacher stopped teaching, if the teacher stopped working entirely. We have no data like that. And so actually one of the things we have found that would be extremely useful for our states to do is to have a better handle, like almost every other sector in the economy does, on their supply and their demand. How many people are actually being prepared in their states to be STEM teachers? What is the current demand and what is the projected to demand with attrition with people resigning or otherwise leaving teaching? That's a great point. You know, I spend a lot of time on the mergers and acquisitions side of the world. And one of the first questions that we'll ask a target is, what is your employee turnover? right? How well are you retaining your talent? Are you a, the kind of place that somebody would would want to work, would want to spend their career? To your point about STEM teachers um, being on balance happier than others in STEM careers, that's a great little nugget that you shared with us there and a great reason for people to consider STEM teaching. Certainly incredibly rewarding work and incredibly important work. You know, one of the things that we talked about in this initiative is it's to prepare not just 100,000 STEM teachers, but the word excellent is in there on purpose, right? 100,000 excellent STEM teachers. Talia, what makes an excellent STEM teacher? I'll share a few of the things that come out very, very clearly from our work with hundreds of organizations from the research. One is uh, hands-on, experiential, and relevant learning. By relevant, I mean personally relevant and career relevant. That learning, we know it for ourselves. We know when we see our kids light up 
Um, we know it when we talk to teachers about what worked over the pandemic when they could barely reach their kids. Like these were the things that worked and that is true. And it cuts across race and actually is one of those things where um, kids who are often excluded from STEM, girls, kids of color, kids who are poor, it, like is, it is a great equalizer when, when our learning is experiential, hands-on and relevant. And I would say also joyful, which is a word we don't use often enough in conjunction with education, but is essential. Like we're in an environment now where people are choosing what they want to learn. And kids turn on and off with a lot of discretion. If learning can be that relevant, joyful, um, experiential and hands-on, it lights kids up that it is the learning that works. It's the learning that sticks. So hands-on, experiential, relevant, and joyful. That is all music to my ears. We've talked on the Tech Ed podcast uh, in the past about my education journey. And I was the kid that was always in trouble because I couldn't sit still in class. I wrote a magazine column for Gardner Media about a year ago where I said that all of the things I got in trouble for when I was in grade school were things that made me successful as a manufacturing executive. I couldn't sit still. I was curious. I needed to be doing something with my hands all the time. You know, I, I, I absolutely deplored doing anything that didn't have a purpose. And, and sometimes you get in trouble for that in grade school, but then you get into the, the world of manufacturing and the world of industry. And those are the very values that people look for. You know, I, I spent a lot of time when I was in grade school and, and up until about third or fourth grade, people called me Matthew instead of Matt. And the question was always, what's wrong with Matthew? Well, the problem wasn't Matthew. The problem was that the learning wasn't hands-on. It wasn't experiential. It wasn't relevant. And because of that, it wasn't joyful. So as you touch on some of these really important things, how do we reach communities with STEM opportunities who haven't had them in the past? How do we inspire more young girls and more women around careers in STEM and manufacturing, which is important to me, uh, because a lot of them, as you well know, will start turning off to those career pathways when they're in middle school. And the more interesting we can make these, these pathways, the better. Your whole goal of creating 100,000 of these amazing STEM teachers that can come into the classroom and inspire that next generation is spot on. And to your earlier point, you've actually exceeded that goal now at 108,000 STEM teachers that have been prepared and placed in classrooms around the United States of America. Now, Talia, part of achieving this incredible goal was understanding the underlying causes of this teacher shortage. This isn't something that happened overnight. This is something that took a long time to create itself. Tell us about your research and what you uncovered as to why we had the shortage in the first place. Oh, that's a great question. So just like you said, we came to feel after we started this initiative, got hundreds of organizations to sign on, not just to sign on, but to make commitments, to commit their own resources to achieving this goal and to contributing their own people and talent to that, that these hundreds of organizations were working on, I felt like dozens, maybe a hundred different dimensions of the problem. And that nobody had a handle, like nobody could wrap their arms around what that was. And you know what? It's like basically really hard to solve a problem that you don't understand. And yeah, like all the time we set out trying to solve problems and we, we, we literally don't understand what the dimensions of them are. And so we realized we had these hundreds of organizations here. Who was better suited? Who was better positioned to be able to understand all of the dimensions of the problems than we were? We could ask all of these organizations and ask all of their teachers to help us to see the problem in its full 360 degree beauty. And so thousands of people contributed their perspectives. And what we found is there were like, 100 different challenges, more than 100 different components of why there is a chronic STEM teacher shortage. And the thing about that is that is not like natural. It's not like gravity that we have a STEM teacher shortage. We haven't always had one in this country and other countries don't have one at all. It was like a human problem that we had created. 
And it was a human problem that we could uncreate. We could we could choose to make different. Some of the biggest challenges that arose, and by, by biggest here, I mean the ones that had the greatest leverage. You talked about leverage earlier. So these were challenges that if they could get better, would not only themselves improve, but would help others improve also. We used some big data and some complexity science to figure this out. So here are some of them. The first actually was around elementary teachers and elementary learning. So what you were describing, Matt, is so common, right? That kids, when they're young, either get turned on or not to math, especially, and come to feel like math isn't their thing or that it can be. And if that doesn't, if you don't get turned on by fifth grade for sure, but often by third grade, there's no real chance. And so how we support elementary teachers to teach and understand math and science and to do that in those active and hands-on ways, uh, and whether those teachers experience being taught in that same hands-on way. So if they ever experience the kind of teaching that they're supposed to deliver to their kids, those showed up as very high leverage. At the other end of the team in high school, some of the same themes though, this like relevance, this joyful learning shows up at the high school end of it. So are there, is there a breadth of curriculum specifically around engineering or computer science? And um, are those courses culturally and career relevant to kids? But let me tell you something that showed up that we heard only from teachers and then neither principals nor other sector leaders talked about, but shows up as some of the highest leverage of all of the challenges. And those are about the workplace conditions of being a teacher. Do I have time as a teacher to do professional development during the school day? Do I have time as a teacher to collaborate with my colleagues during the school day? And is there another person in the building who is responsible for the workplace culture? The way that any manager, right, in manufacturing, pick your industry, part of what they're responsible, thinking about what you're talking about M&A, when you do mergers and acquisitions, you want to know what's the culture, what's the turnover, right? Is someone attending to this culture in this place? Most of the time, that is not on the, like, the job description of principles. And so there's no one in there asking, is, is the culture here a culture in which I can be successful? And then when you think about that, in particular for the STEM subjects, we're asking teachers to teach kids to be comfortable failing to be comfortable trying something, not having it work, learning from that failure and doing it again. And yet teachers rarely are in an environment where they have that same grace to try things, to fail, to learn and try again. So it's almost impossible. We can imagine if they don't experience that joyful learning, that opportunity to fail, if they're not in a culture where they can collaborate, where they can be continuous learners, how do they create classrooms where that is possible? And so those are some of the highest leverage of the reasons why we have a chronic shortage of STEM teachers. This goes back a few years ago. I studied all of, in my region, we have like the top 100 workplaces. You'll see these all over the United States where they'll, you know, they'll have a small, midsize and large company. And then these are the top 100 workplaces in this state or in this region. And I was like, you know, I wonder what it takes to make a top 100 workplace. And so I went through all of the applications were online. So if somebody nominated their employer, that information was there. So I went through and I, and I just started making a list in a spreadsheet. My goal was let's come up with like the 15 things that make an amazing workplace. So I went through and I listed all the comments and then I put them all into categories. And when I was done, there weren't 15 categories or 10 or even seven. Everything came down to three things. And it's really in different words, the same three things that you talk about. And it was, it was people, respect, and freedom. And the people part of it was, it's not who you work for, but who you work with. 
And when you talk about the importance of collaboration among teachers and being able to work with people that have, you know, have similar interests, but also can challenge your thinking, can show you different ways of doing things, that whole people part of it is so important. The respect part of it is, do I work in an organization that values my input and also, you know, trust me with information and, and having a workplace in, in, a, in a classroom and in, in a school that fosters that type of respect is really important. And then the last one is freedom, which is within the you know, confines of whatever my job is, how much autonomy do I have to explore, to do things right, to fail, to let my students fail? So it was just an interesting insight that you just shared with me. I heard somebody speaking about two months ago, Talia, and they made this observation that just stuck with me. And they said, if you think about the typical American classroom, it hasn't changed substantially since the 1950s. I mean, we're in many cases teaching students the same way we did 70 years ago, which is you think about all the changes in the world since the 50s, and yet teaching hasn't changed. And, and to your point, unless a teacher has been in a classroom or in an environment where they have this joyful experiential learning, you know, maybe they don't even know a good way to bring that to their students, or they're not comfortable trying something like that. There was just so many amazing insights buried in that last, you know, 90 second answer that you provided to, to our last question. I could go on for an entire episode, just, I think, exploring that, that question, but, but we are moving on. I want to talk about your approach to how you catalyzed change. So you talked a bit about your partners and about, about getting these other organizations involved in, in your initiative. What was your methodology for preparing this next generation of, of STEM teachers? So I think we could boil it down to three or four key things we did. One is we had a big goal, so big that no organization could do it on their own, which meant that we were kind of thrust into a radical collaboration. There was no way I could be like, oh no, just give me a, just give me a chance. I've got this. I've got the 100,000. Like the White House couldn't do it. No one could do it. And so once you have that, like forces us to find new ways to work together to achieve a goal that is unachievable alone. So that was the first, a big goal. The second was asking organizations, likely and unlikely, so folks who were always working on STEM and education and teachers and folks who, who weren't, to make commitments, to actually not just sign on and say, this is an important goal, we believe in this lofty aspiration, but actually to commit their own resources their own people and assets to this shared challenge. And that again, like it was, it was the expected folks, but it was, it was corporations, it was government, it was museums that were science rich. Like it was a huge range of organizations. The third thing is that when we identify those highest leverage challenges that were kind of causing and perpetuating the STEM teacher crisis, the STEM teacher shortage, we focus the network on them. We said, we understand that you might currently be working on any of these hundred challenges, and they are all well and good and important, but a few of them, if we can make progress on them, will actually start to move the system. They will start that snowball at the top of the mountain and, and put us in a place where it is rolling itself down and we are moving toward progress. And so let's focus. I said, we said to them, wherever you have a chance to focus on these few challenges. Let's do that. Let's do it together. And we mobilized people to do that. We created the containers for them to do innovation, to do research, do practice around those few challenges. And then the, the fourth is that we, we understand, all of us, I think, who are thinking about this, that the biggest problems require collaboration, that we can't solve them on our own, and that it is very hard to collaborate. 
it just is all of our incentives, our funding, our press, our like um, talent acquisition, all of those incentives run away from collaboration and want us to be independent and yet we can't solve problems independently. And so my team became the experts in removing barriers to collaboration. So setting a big goal, let's start out with something that is so big, so huge that nobody can say no to it. Finding people who are making commitments, both in that likely category and the unlikely category, and then holding them. What is it specifically that we are going to do? I love the idea of focusing on a few key initiatives, coming back to leverage, really, right? I mean, we where are we going to get the most leverage out of the fewest initiatives? Let's not try to solve every problem. Let's solve the biggest problems, and we'll worry about the smaller ones later. And then recognizing, I think you're right, that it is so very hard to collaborate in some cases when we have competing goals and we have competing agendas, and, and recognizing that up front and working around that and working past that, really the key to, to all of this collaboration. We've talked a little bit, Talia, about about your partners, anything more you'd like to share with us, both in terms of, you know, how many did you start out with? How many do you have here now as you've passed your 2021 mark? Tell us a little bit about that. We started with 28 organizations in 2011. They were always a mix of sectors. It was This was cross-sector from Go. Uh, there were nonprofits, there were universities, there were school districts and charter schools. There were corporations and philanthropy and government at every level federal, state, and local, 28 organizations. And when we crossed the finish line, we crossed it with more than 10 times that, more than 300 organizations crossed the finish line with us. And every one of those organizations had made and successfully made progress on or completed their commitments. And many of them exceeded it. 300 partners there to, to at the 2021 mark. Absolutely incredible that you've managed to get that many organizations involved and not just involved, but but signing up for the big goal and signing up for the role of recognizing that it's hard to collaborate, signing up for the, the commitments that you're expecting from them. So what are some of those tools that you've developed to enable that partner collaboration? That doesn't happen on accident. I'm sure you've put a tremendous amount of work into it. First, we believed and everything we did showed this, that the expertise was in the room. We did not need to persuade people to care about their students. These are people who would walk to the end of the earth on behalf of their students and on behalf of the teachers they served. We needed to like ennoble them and, and understand what was, what was causing them difficulty and support them there. And so we, we knew that in a network this big, most of the problems that needed to be solved, that someone needed to solve, somebody else had solved somewhere. And so the biggest piece of work we could do is to help people to find those solutions when they needed them. And so we created a thing called collaboration grants. If you met somebody or you, we connected you, which we were constantly doing, we had a thing we called connection concierge. We asked people, what are you struggling with and what are you great at? We then used the connection concierge to connect people. And if they if they met each other, either through us connecting them or through other serendipity, other ways that we brought people together over the years, they could quickly receive a small amount of money to pay for a plane ticket, a train ticket to buy their breakfast and their, their sandwich and their soda and go and meet the people in person and take up whatever like new practice or a solution to a challenge that they had that they needed. And so those collaboration grants Spark. They we spent you know in the in the five digits on them, and they sparked millions of dollars of innovation. Sometimes in direct grants, uh, and often in solutions that state funds or solved problems. So a small school district had innovated a way of reaching out to potential candidates in STEM, and New York City, the largest school district, learned about it at an event, went out to go see it in action, and brought it back and ran it at a thousand x scale uh, back. 
So that is like one set of examples. As the network matured, what we began to realize is that the network had more and greater capacity to do work together, not just to learn from each other, but to actually solve problems together. And so two things emerged from that. One was that we could sometimes see, because we were talking to all these organizations, we see ourselves as like the narrow part of a funnel or of an hourglass, I should say. We, we take in a ton of information. We're able to synthesize it and make sense of it. And then we can bring it back out in ways that are helpful to the field. And so as we were hearing challenges, and people would often say to us, you know, this is just me. I just don't know why it's so hard to recruit new teachers. I just don't know why it's so hard to help people understand these new standards. And we were hearing that from enough people, but we would say like, this is not you alone. This is a systemic challenge. It's a national challenge. And so we brought people together. They became essentially a, like a collaborative client and they would co-fund and bring to market solutions that none of them could have afforded on their own but that together they could actually bring enough capital to bear to get the caliber of solution that was worthy of the caliber and complexity of the problem they were trying to solve. And collectively, these nonprofits, mostly nonprofits, funded and raised more than a million dollars in funds to bring solutions to market that they could all use. That was the second set of things we did. And then as the network matured yet again, we realized that partners didn't need us to, us to play the middle the middle person role in setting up those marketplaces, those collaborative marketplaces. And we created what we call project teams or innovation teams. We have had more than a hundred of them where people come together, identify a problem. So a leader will say, hey, I'm facing this problem. We'll put that problem out to the field. Other people will raise their hand and say, I'm also struggling with that. They come together. They get research support. So they make sure that they're building off of the best of what is known. No one should start from scratch. And then they innovate from there. And we have literally put hundreds of innovative solutions out into the field that people are like co-designed and are using in their own environments and other people are benefiting from. So those are just a few of the examples of how we've helped people to collaborate and solve problems. Really important work. Wish we could talk for hours about all the great things that have, that have happened through this initiative, but take credit for at least one Talia initiative that you've been a part of in, in one of the success stories that you want to share with our audience. Oh my gosh, that's a thank you for that. It's a very kind thing. But the work at the end of the day was our partners being out there with teachers and those teachers being out there with students. And what we did is create an environment in which the parts could come together to add up, not just to the whole, at least to the whole, right? That's what so often our parts don't even add up to the whole, but they could add up not just to the whole, but to more than that. And I think that we had an independent evaluator come in to look at all of the work and the impact and what they found resonated with what we were observing, which is that organization after organization, university after university, district, school, you know, museum, everyone said that what they were able to do through 100K and 10 was more than what they could have done on their own. They were able to find better practices, to solve problems, to, to bring new solutions to bear, to help their teachers teach better and to help more students to learn. And I feel like it was very clear to me when we started this, that the world did not need another nonprofit to provide STEM opportunities. There were so many of them doing that work out out there for kids. What we needed was a way to combine all of those pieces and make them actually work together on behalf of teachers and students. What we needed was a way for all these organizations to collaborate toward a similar goal and a same goal. And that's exactly what you've done. I I know that people are intrigued as they've listened to our discussion here, Talia, about 100K and 10. Talk to us about how the audience and many of whom are STEM teachers or school districts or other people interested in the, the future of STEM, how can they get access to the tools and resources that you've developed and launched? 
Well, everything is available on our website. So if you go to 100kin10.org, and then if you go from there uh, to see the grand challenges, which was the name we gave to all of those like impediments to uh, ending the STEM teacher shortage, all the reasons why we have a chronic STEM teacher shortage, you can see all of those hundreds of tools. You can see case studies. You can see the best research. You can see what organizations are currently working on it. And our, our hope is that nobody needs to start from scratch. And many people have found their way to us because they have found that website first. And so corporations and funders who have chosen grantees, organizations who have found allies, sometimes around the corner they didn't know about and sometimes across the country. But I would be remiss if I left you just with looking at what exists right now and didn't tell you also about what's coming for the next 10 years. I was thinking about how you said when you were a kid, you were like reprimanded or punished for all the things that made you successful as an adult. And like that creativity, the curiosity, the insatiableness, the bounciness, all of those things. Um, And one of the great insights from design thinking is that when we understand the experiences of those who are often at the edges or most excluded, we can see insights that are true for all of us. And so it turns out that that kind of joyful and relevant and engaging learning that's like we found was a high leverage thing for the youngest learners, a high leverage thing for the our high school learners turns out to be useful for kids who might have been like punished, you know, when they were in school 30 years ago, but also is better for actually everyone. And so we took a similar approach and we looked at who was most excluded from STEM and identified communities, especially Black, Latinx, and Native American communities who are most excluded from STEM opportunity from the earliest learners all the way through the workforce. And we invited them among hundreds of others to tell us their stories about their experiences in math and science. And we did that because we believed that if they told us their stories, we would know what our next goal needed to be. And we knew we needed a next goal because we haven't ended the STEM teacher shortage. That is obviously true with this pandemic, but it was true before. Our our project was to prepare 100,000 STEM teachers. It wasn't to end the STEM teacher shortage, but that is where we need to set our sights. So the question was, what was the next goal that was going to bring us closer to that so that we could viably end it in the next decade? And so we trusted that if we listened, really listened to young people who have been most excluded, they would show us the way and point us to the next moonshot. And, And they did. And so you asked also at the beginning, what are the essential ingredients to great STEM learning? I talked about hands-on, experiential, relevant, and joyful learning. What they told us, which wasn't on our radar until we asked them to tell us their stories, was that they also needed to believe and to be told that they belonged, that they had a right to be in STEM, that they could be successful there, that they could be seen and heard there, that they were innately capable So when you ask, like, what can people do? So that is our next goal. Our next goal is to prepare 150,000 teachers to retain 150,000 teachers. So much bigger goals uh, to ensure that those teachers represent the kids that they are teaching and that they, these teacher leaders who will be in schools all over the country can create classrooms of belonging and that they themselves can experience schools of belonging. And what we have found is that that belonging can be nurtured by so many people So it can be supported, not just by the teachers who are by far the most important people, these young storytellers told us, who created a sense of belonging for them, 
But if you are out there as a company, you can create environments and support for those teachers to do that. If you are a family, if you are a citizen in your neighborhood, but your kids have long since grown up, if you're a business owner locally, you can be a part of creating schools of belonging in which all kids believe they can succeed and have a right to succeed in these STEM fields that are the drivers of really of the future. What a really important message. And when you think about individuals, what a shame it is that there's anybody in our country that thinks that they don't have a right to be in STEM. Of course they do. And by the nature of the feedback you got there, we're not doing a good enough job of sharing that message. And that's just a great part of this next phase of your initiative as you work to prepare 150,000 teachers and retain them in this world of STEM. It's going to be a really exciting next 10 years for 100K and 10. As we close out our time together, Talia, one last question, a question we ask every guest on our podcast. If you could give one piece of advice to a high school sophomore as they consider their future pathway, what is that advice? I would say find whatever it is that lights you up. Because when you are lit up from the inside, you will solve every problem in your way. You will figure out what you need. You will learn all the things you need. Like that inner light is yours. You have a right to it. Find it, believe in it, nurture it seek it out. You have a right to glow and to thrive. And when you do that, like the world will be a better place. You indeed do have a right to glow and thrive. You're helping individuals do exactly that. I want to thank you for that really important work and for just a great episode, Talia. It was so much fun to get to know you, get to know your organization. And thank you so much for this important work. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.